morning. Woo, we're on. Okay, um, we're going to have a little bit of story time, and so I want to make sure I have my chair with me. I hope y'all are having a good morning. I want to take just a moment and give a little bit of a shameless uh, plug. Uh, starting this uh, uh, Sunday night, we have small groups, and I'm not trying to steal anybody away from their own small group, but if you're not involved in one, we're starting a new study here at the church at 4 o'clock. We're studying, you're going to love this, I know it's really exciting, spiritual disciplines. Uh, and I know anytime you hear the word discipline, you think of being a child and, and maybe your parent giving you a spanking. Well, this, this is some really fun, interesting stuff, and I, I think you'd like to join us. We're going to talk about uh, different types of prayer, uh, different uh, ways that, that you can grow spiritually, whether that's through journaling, uh, whether that's through any number of, of prayers uh, that we can model and practice. And so what the plan is, the format is, is that we're, this first time we're just going to introduce spiritual disciplines as a whole. But then each week we are going to talk about a spiritual discipline. And then that next week you're going to have an opportunity to try it out. And then we'll come back that next week and we'll talk a little bit about it. And we'll introduce a new one and we'll start over again. So come join us at 4 o'clock today. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Well, let's talk about what we're talking about. And, and let me start my stopwatch. That first part didn't count against my time. Okay, so here we go. Um, it happened nearly every week in Hazard County. They had more ramps and more uh, uh, bales of hay than anywhere else per capita. And it always seemed to happen that right before a commercial break, Bo and Luke Duke were jumping, and it looked like that they were about to land into a pond or something bad was going to happen because, of course, you know, Roscoe P. Coltrane was chasing them, okay, and Boss Hogg was right there behind him in the white Cadillac and the Longhorns, and Flash was sitting there beside him. And you always thought, what's going to happen next? Are Bo and Luke going to survive? Well, we're going to do a little version of that this week. We've been studying the feast for about the last six weeks, the last two months. In fact, we've covered six of those feasts. I won't go over them again, but we have saved the best for last. So it's time to go and do the Passover. But what we're actually going to do this week is we're going to pass over the Passover. And I have a reason for doing this because... Next week is when Passover will literally take place in 2017. And I wanted us to have an opportunity to actually talk about the Passover the day before it would begin. So next week, get geared up for that. So we're going to commercial break. And Bo and Luke Duke are in the air, but it's okay. I have a, I have a pretty good idea that the General Lee is going to land safe and sound. So hang on for next week. Instead, we're going to go to a very familiar story that we have heard so many times before. But I want us to see if we can glean something a little different out of this story than we have in the past. So there is a rather lengthy uh, passage, and I think the best thing that we can do is to just read it. And it's one we've heard so many times before that we might just have forgotten some of the details. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you if you'd join me in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We are just nearly going to read the whole chapter. So I want to encourage you to get comfortable, but not too comfortable. Please follow along with me with this text and allow your mind and your imagination to think about what's going on. Just allow yourself uh, to to delve into this. Uh, And we're going to try to stumble through the first few verses because there are some words in there that I cannot pronounce and I'm going to butcher them and that's okay. We're going to go through those and then we'll pick up speed. Here we go. 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched their camps at Ephes, Damim, between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out at me and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down, and if he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight one another. We're going to stop there for just a second in verse 10. Okay, so what's going on here? We have these two ridgelines of hills, these mountains, and in between them is a valley. We have the Philistines on the one side. We have the Israelites on the other side. Both of them have tactical positions in which they want to keep. You go down into the valley and you are in no man's land. No one wants to go down there because going down there means what? Your enemy is now up above you. They have the high ground. Nobody wants to concede the spot that they're in. Okay, so another thing that seems a little bit interesting but was quite common back then is that they would choose one person to fight for their entire army. And this was actually good for them because this meant that could, it could alleviate a lot of bloodshed. And so the Philistines, the hated army of the Israelites, had one man by the name of Goliath. He was from Gath, and he was estimates we don't know for sure, but, but we believe that he's over nine feet tall. He could have been nine feet six inches tall, Uh, Depending on how uh, big a cubit is, he could have been as tall as 12 feet. Uh, There are other estimates that says no. uh, Based on it, he could have been, you know, somewhere closer to 7 feet. Nonetheless, he was a giant. 
And he came down into the valley and he said to them, Hey, I want to fight. You bring me someone to fight. By the way, I'm just one of these old good-for-nothing Philistines and you're the servants of Saul, King Saul, the great one. Surely there's somebody who's going to come out and fight me. And so what is the response of the servants of Saul? Well, let's see what verse 11 says. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The first one was Eliab, the second one Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, for 40 days, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Anybody do the math on that one? How many times did he come before the Israelites and taunt them? Eighty times. Now Jesse said to his son, David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men in Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. <laughs> Which is ironic because nobody is fighting the Philistines at that time. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd loaded up. Excuse me. David left the flock with a shepherd loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position positions Shouting the war cry. Does that seem awkward to you? Isn't there something missing about this? He shows up. They're getting in their lines. They're shouting the war cry. They go get up to the battle lines and what do they do? They shake in their boots. They have the battle cry. They're in formation. And they sit there afraid. They need a new war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. Now that's one way to get a tax break, isn't it? 
David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same manner, the matter. The men uh, answered him as before. When David, uh, what David said was overheard and reported Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go ahead and fight for him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out and fight against this Philistine. Excuse me. You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight against him. You are only a boy and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came out and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after and struck it. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hands, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with a shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the fields. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give you the carcass, today I will give the the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you all and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him David 
ran quickly toward him and the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead and he fell face down onto the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. That actually 50 is out of place. That's a summary. Because at this point in time, Goliath is still alive. Because we'll listen in 51. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from his, the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And then we'll go on to say that the Philistines, they freak out. They get scared. They run away. And they're being chased by the Israelites. Okay, so there's a lot of things about this story that we've heard over and over again. And I want to talk about the miracle that took place down in that valley. And really what prompted this is something I talked a little bit about last week uh, in our class on on Sunday morning. Uh, I've been reading a little bit of of Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, He's written several books. One book in particular is called David and Goliath. Uh, And it's not so much uh, spiritual in nature, although he begins with the story of David and Goliath. And what he really wants to do is talk about this idea of underdogs and how underdogs may not necessarily be underdogs. Now, he's going to go ahead and, and break apart this story. And at first, it really, really bothered me because he seemed to have taken away all the miracle out of the story of David and Goliath because he said, hey, listen here. This really isn't as miraculous as you think it is because here we have Goliath who is nine feet tall, okay? Nine feet tall. He's a big guy. And physics dictate that big things move slower than small things as a general rule, right? The bigger they are, the slower they are. And conversely, the bigger target that they are. And Malcolm Gladwell would go on to say that, you know what? Goliath was a big man, and he was the best man to be out there as long as it was close quarters. Because he had the special armor, 125 pounds of armor, that really could stop anybody who got into a sword fight with him. That as long as they were up front, toe-to-toe, face-to-face, no one could beat Goliath. But David, the underdog, might not have been such an underdog because he was taking a tactic that was different than anybody else. And Malcolm Gladwell went on to talk about, you know, the different types of fighters that they had in that time. They had the people, the swordsmen, the infantry, that would have been like Goliath. You had those, the the cavalry, those were on horses or in chariots. Uh, And then you had the third, uh, and that would be the um, artillery. They would shoot arrows, or more importantly, they would sling stones. And he described the dynamic between the three, and basically it was a game of rock, paper, scissors. And it always happened that artillery, artillery could beat infantry. Because infantry was slow, and they were really meant for close quarters. And David, David took a different approach altogether. Well, that bothered me a little bit, but I started thinking more and more about the story of David and Goliath. And I think we've placed the miracle in the wrong area. 
In fact, I don't even think the real miracle happened that day. And you're saying, whoa, that's not right. This truly was a miracle. I think we've made too much of the lone gunman on the grassy knoll theory. The idea that it was the special magic bullet. That, that there was something special about the stone that was used, that God had given David this head-seeking missile that he would sling and he would shoot it at Goliath, and Goliath had no chance because of the way that David approached him. But I think the real miracle happened not in a valley where a battle was being waged, but in a war, but in a, but in a pasture where there was peace. I want to talk about that for just a minute. And we can look logistically at what took place, um, which is a little bit interesting, so I'll share that with you. Um, it was not miraculous in the fact that David was an excellent uh, a slinger, what we'll call him. Uh, they were not the slingshot that you saw with, as kids. They had the little elastic tubing and you would shoot that. It was, it was two leather straps that were about this long. Uh, and in between them was a pouch. And, and a marksman, one who was familiar with that, could hit targets up to 200 yards away. In fact, they went back and looked at carvings from that time, and based on that, they were determined that a slinger could hit a bird in flight. That these stones in which they would use, it would whip around, and when they would let go of one of the ends, that, that, that it would let go and it would come out so fast that the other end that they let go of would make that whip sound and crack which it makes that sound like a whip because it's going faster than the speed of sound. It would be like a miniature sonic boom. He would let go of that like a whip and the stone would come out of the sling at over 100 miles an hour. And they were deadly accurate. In fact, uh, they would go on later on, just a, a, a couple years ago, the History Channel tried to determine if it's even plausible that a rock could knock down a giant. And they, they talked about all these, uh, the, the amount of Newtons that were needed in order to cause this. And they determined that the rock coming out of a pouch of a slinger came out with such force, it was the equivalent stopping power as a 45 caliber handgun. This is pretty impressive. So, is this taking away from the miraculous power of a young boy carrying a stone? I don't think the power belongs in the slinging of the stone. You see, I think the big problem with touting David and Goliath is the great miracle, is that we all get stuck on wanting to have that day where we face Goliath and we defeat him. If all we ever think about is the extraordinary event that took place down in the valley with the, the giant from Gath, then we forget what happened before. 
before you can have an extraordinary event, it has to be preceded by a lot of extra ordinary days. And this was the life of David. This was the miracle that God was working in the life of a young shepherd boy. The miracles began before he chose the five stones, before he picked up his sling, and before he charged and ran straight at Goliath, swinging the sling so he might slay the giant. It happened all before. Before it was extraordinary, it was just extraordinary days. Over and over and over again. We go back and look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Does anybody remember what happens? Okay, so we have God comes to Samuel and he says to Samuel, Saul is no longer my king. You need to go anoint a new one. And Samuel is deeply grieved, but he agrees that God is supposed to take him. And he's going to anoint a new king over Israel. He says, I want you to go to Bethlehem. There's going to be a guy there named Jesse. And one of his sons you're going to anoint. And so he goes there. And he, he meets Jesse. And out comes Eliab. And Eliab is strong and good looking. I mean, probably like me, Right? Okay, we're awake now. And he says, God says, that's not the man. And he goes down to Abinadab. And here we have, okay, we're getting ready. Samuel says, okay, I'm ready to anoint him. And God says, uh-uh, that's not the man. And then he goes, Shema, the third one, he gets ready. And God says, uh-uh, that's not the man. He says, you're looking at outward appearances. That's what men looks at. But, but God looks at the heart. They get through seven boys, and there is no one left in the house. And Samuel's like, I brought my oil. God said to anoint somebody, what's going on? And Jesse says, oh yeah, I got one more, the runt, the little guy, the youngest one. He's out in the field, you know. He's doing the the menial job of looking after the sheep. And Samuel says, I'm not sitting down until he gets here. So they go run and fetch him, bring him back, and God says, this is the one. He anoints him, and right right then and there, they hand David the crown, put it on his head, give him a sword, and said, yes, you're the new king, right? No! Where does David go next? Back to the pasture, looking after the dumb sheep. Because they need to have somebody who takes care of them. Because they're not real smart animals. And we'll just... We'll let David do that. In fact, we just looked in 1 Samuel 17, and Eliab's like, hey, shouldn't you be taking care of the sheep, you know, the big dumb animals out there? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do, kid. Get out of here. But here's the miracle. The miracle is not in a big giant falling down. I believe the real miracle is that God was working so powerfully in the life of David. And David was so connected with his Creator and his Lord as he sat down and he looked after the sheep and he sang songs. He made up songs to sing to God. As he sat there and did that, he created a relationship and God poured within him his Spirit and gave him this this amazing 
extraordinary amount of courage. That's what it was. It wasn't a special rock. There wasn't super magic involved in the fact that he killed the giant. You do that ten times out of ten. The slinger's going to win. That's not the miracle. The miracle is that he believed God. You want to know why he believed God? Because every day he trusted him. Every day he worshipped God. I'm not trying to take away from the fact that David killed the Goliath. What I am really wanting to underscore is that miracles happen before the giant shows up. Not on the battlefield do we finally realize that God is with us. But every day as we find ourselves in the pasture, in the office, at our house, doing those menial and mundane tasks. It's in those opportunities that when we sing to God, when we write songs to God, when we speak of His love and His grace and His power, and we talk about a God who who we don't need anything as long as we have Him around, that He leads us and He guides us. And we're not afraid of anything. Even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David would say, he's not going to fear any evil. This is the miracle that we have in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's not a giant falling. It's the courage of a young boy rising up within him as he realizes God is in control. So what does this really mean for us? It means this. Stop looking for giants. Stop waiting for that one time where you get to pull out the sling and the stone and you get to slay the giant. Because in the meantime, we're missing out on opportunities while we're in the pasture. We don't have to to be a mega church. We don't have to be on TV. You don't have to do something amazing like walking on water or healing somebody. God says, I want you to be faithful and trust in me every single day. Why did David not go to the throne the day he was anointed? Because God says, I need you to be faithful in the mundane and in the small You hang out with the sheep and you come to know me and you do those tasks every day and someday you may need it because you'll face a giant. But every day we have an opportunity to praise Him. For some of you, you're on a mountaintop. You feel like things are going great. For others of you, you're in the valley. But for the vast majority of us, we're in the plain. We're right in the middle. Things aren't going up. Things aren't going down. It's just life. Tedious. Over and over and over again. And God says, 
This is where I live and I work. Don't wait for the mountain. Don't wait for the valley. I'm with you right now. If you found yourself in that middle spot and you're wondering where God is and what He has for you in, in your life, do not despair. God works in pastures as well as on battlefields. May we remember that as we go out this week. May we be ready to slay giants or sing songs all for the glory of God. Let's do it as we stand and sing.